0: so good morning everyone uh my name is vincent valella and we are recording again on february 4th because we're recording two in the same day maybe three maybe four we'll see um
1: but without further ado good morning adrian good morning vince i'm adrian adrian galvin and we are talking about the willows by algernon blackwood this is a 1907 horror short story we're going to be diving into chapter two Previously in chapter one, the Swede snuck up on the main character because the island is so noisy and creepy. And we're in the aftermath of that encounter, so back to the book. "'You've been gone so long,' he shouted above the wind. "'I thought something must have happened to you. "'But there was that in his tone and a certain look in his face as well "'that conveyed to me more than his usual words.' And in a flash, I understood the real reason for his coming. It was because the spell of the place had entered his soul too, and he did not like to be alone. He always said the same things, but it was the cry for companionship that gave the real importance to his words. So this is an important transition because the Swede has been set up in the entire first chapter as this like hardcore... Very. He doesn't talk very much. He's a survivalist. He's competent. He's not scared of things. Uh, think Clint Eastwood, but Swedish, I guess. <laughs> and um here he comes. He sneaks up on the main character. He's like, "Oh my god, something's wrong." um So this is the first time we see the Swede starting to break a little bit, and it's a a break a little bit, and it's a big transition.
0: See, I always picture the Swede is more like someone from The Revenant like kind of like gruff like just like shoots things with
1: muskets definitely muskets anyway blunderbuss blunderbuss he definitely carries more than one blunderbuss um that's why they need a canoe what do you what do you have a canoe for
0: not blunderbuss so i wanted to talk about how during the when you're scared you're trying to look for something to 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 comfort you generally and what the protagonist seeks to find comfort in is sleep. So they've had a pretty rough day, like scary things, weird things have happened. Um, and there's this one sentence uh, where he ta- says, I remembered as sleep came down and covered all with its soft, delicious forgetfulness, mm. which I think is interesting because he's not saying the problem's fixed. Right. He's saying he's forgetting the problem. Yes. Um, which is in me creates some sort of struggle because he's not fixing it he's not doing anything about it he's just forgetting it yeah um which makes me feel more scared right because he's not doing anything he's just
1: ignoring it um and i'm like have
0: fix it but there's nothing really there's nothing he
1: can do right he's just scared and uh things are about to go pretty south so they both go back to the tent and they fall asleep for a while and then he wakes up And he sees something up in the trees. I'm about to get introduced to another character here. It's pretty cool. So here we go. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) They first became properly visible. These huge figures just within the tops of the bushes. Immense. Bronze colored. Moving and wholly independent of the swaying of the branches. I saw them plainly and noted. Now I came to examine them more calmly. That they were very much larger than human. And indeed, that something in their appearance proclaimed them not to be human at all. They rose upwards in a continuous stream from earth to sky, vanishing utterly as soon as they reached the dark of the sky. They were interlaced with one another, making a great column, and I saw their limbs and huge bodies melting in and out of each other, forming this serpentine line that bent and swayed and twisted spirally with the contortions of the wind-tossed trees." They were nude, fluid shapes passing up the bushes, within the leaves almost, rising up in a living column into the heavens. Their faces I never could see. Unceasingly, they poured upwards, swaying in great bending curves with a hue of dull bronze upon their skins. This is a fascinating uh, description of a horror spirit. Usually, when I think of horror creatures, I think of them having claws and terrifying fangs and blood red eyes and they're coming to smash you and these things just ignore him like they literally don't even know that he's there and they're it's almost like evaporation they're like evaporating into these long columns into the sky and it's it's clear that they have this relationship with the sky and with the wind and with the willows and you will see later on in the book that the the horror seems to come from the very air. It comes from above them and it's watching them and it's bleeding out of this place. And this is the first time that you see it. These are the creatures that make the Island the way that it is.
0: They sound, they sound almost pretty. Like just yeah. them as
1: bronze is a very strange
0: choice. I think. Right. Um, because like while bronze, I don't think is a comforting color. Right. Um, it's not like, it's not spooky. Um, yeah, it's, not, it's,
1: I almost pictured, like, angelic, like, sheep, like, kind of, like, writhing. (laughs) Angelic sheep. Um, It is really interesting because I think he's separated uh, the horror from the physical body of the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, the physical bodies of the thing are unearthly. Yeah. But they're not necessarily horrifying. They're kind of, like, beautiful spirits. What's horrible is what they can do in the world. And that, that separation is really interesting because I think a lot of current horror makes the body of the creature horrible mm-hmm. whereas these are actually kind of they're just n- un- they're unlike neutral human. yeah they're unhuman they're not horrifying um yeah, so it's a really interesting change
0: so um the the protagonist sees these spirits and for anyone who's ever played the call of Cthulhu role-playing game he makes a sanity check <laughs> yes. um which he which he often tries to do so he tries to He's trying to rationalize what he's seen, but he's he's struggling with it. So he's saying, I searched everywhere for a proof of reality. When all the while I understood quite well, the standard of reality had changed. For the longer I looked, the more certain I became that these figures were real and living, though perhaps not according to the standards that the camera and the biologist would insist upon. So here the author and the protagonist and you as the reader, are set up with a, a image. You've seen these, these godly spirits. And by following the protagonist's rationale, you can acknowledge them as real, but outside of what we define as reality. And I think this is an important theme throughout the rest of the book, is by showing that there is science, there is reason, but then there's also things that happen outside of there. And that's where this book takes place. Um, so that's one of the things that make it, makes it spooky is because everyone loves to find things that are not able to be proved like magic. Right. Um, it's why people like magic tricks. It's why people like conspiracy theories. It's because mm-hmm. there's something beyond reason right. that impacts our lives. And it's almost it's comforting and exciting in some way.
1: Right. I think you make a really interesting point because this was further back in the scientific revolution than we are right now. And in some ways, I actually think science had more credibility in a way that, than it does now, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> it's interesting that he sets it up as this kind of bar for you to realize the insanity, right? That he's like, even a scientist could not explain this. And so I think he he uses the credibility of that institution to um, show you how frightening this situation is and to take it outside the boundaries of the normal, right? Because science kind of explains what is happening and so he's saying this is beyond any explanation that you or anyone who's you know much smarter than you are could ever come up
0: with and i think for for an individual during this time period this is something like this is reasonable like this is a plausible story right yeah like someone could imagine being at an Mm. inn in hungary right and someone sharing this story with him and be like huh like that that might have happened yeah i better not go there
1: (laughs) yeah Alright, so moving on, we're going to talk about his reaction to seeing this. So he sees this angelic uprising of bronze-colored sheep, and he kind of freaks out, runs around the forest, does some strange stuff, and then we get this. I took a quick look around, a look of horror that came near to panic calculating vainly ways of escape, and then realizing how helpless I was to achieve anything really effective, I crept back silently into the tent and lay down again upon my sandy mattress. First lowering the door, certain to shut out the sight of the willows in the moonlight, and then burying my head as deeply as possible beneath the blankets to deaden the sound of the terrifying wind. (laughs) So I just love this because he goes through this terrifying experience and the, the author describes it over pages. It's like this monumental vision, sort of hallucinogenic vision that he has. And his response is literally just to like run back into the tent and bury his head in a blanket, which I... It's easy to look down upon from, like, the comfort of our kitchen. But at the same time, like, I could see doing that. And he doesn't really have any option. He does talk about that later. We won't get into it. But he says, what am I going to do? Get in the canoe and run away at midnight? You know, like, he doesn't have anything else to do. And so it's this incredibly human moment because he just terrified, like, terrified, he just hides from it. He just he has no other option.
0: And I think the the removal of options is something that consistently Mm -hmm. happens in horror and in this text so the ability there's certain things that keep them safe right um their companionship their campground Hmm. and these things are slowly being removed like even the comfort the sweet delicious comfort of sleep is being removed from him right and this is what is starting to push them into madness And this is a theme you see in a lot of short stories from this time period and works that build upon this, but the idea that there are some things that if exposed to them, you just won't be able to handle. Right. And that if you try to understand it, it's going to be further your undoing. Mm. Um, So at this point in the book, he's trying to rationalize, he's seeing what's going on and it's not working and he is splitting Mm. like his... Grip on reality, splitting. He's a person is splitting, and let's move on to uh, to the Swede.
1: Um, actually, I'm gonna read the first attack of the willows. Oh. Ooh, ooh. We will get to the Swede momentarily. Oh, I love this Swede. Swede. I, was <laughs> just, I was anticipating the Swede. So excited! Sorry, the Swede. just you have to talk about the Swede. Okay, so here we go. This is attack of the willows number one. Here we go. He's, uh, and this is, so he's, he's running to the tent and buried his head underneath a bunch of blankets and in terror. And then he kind of falls asleep after a while. And then he wakes up and he hears this kind of pattering on the outside of the tent. And this is going to be bad. Here we go. Something surely was pressing steadily against the sides of the tent and weighing down upon it from above. Was it the body of the wind? Was this the pattering rain and dripping of the leaves? The spray blown from the river by the wind and gathering in big drops? I thought quickly of a dozen things, then suddenly the explanation leapt into my mind. A bough from the poplar, the only large tree on the island, had fallen with the wind. Still half caught by the other branches, it would fall with the next gust and crush us. And meanwhile, its leaves brushed and tapped upon the light canvas surface of the tent. I raised a loose flap and rushed out calling to the Swede to follow. But when I got out and stood upright, I saw that the tent was free. There was no hanging bough, and there was no rain or spray. Nothing approached. So he goes on then to talk about how the willows have kind of moved, and he's freaking out, and they're terrifying. Um, But (laughs) what's interesting is that this seems to be a false alarm. And you remember from the previous chapter, they saw a body, but it turns out to be an otter. So that's a false alarm. But here... He thinks that something is happening, and he runs outside to check, and it turns out we believe that nothing's happening, but actually they have been attacked, and we're about to hear about what happens. But I think that um, his instinct to denial, that's something you've pointed out, that he just has this unshakable desire to deny everything that's happening, even when he sees it firsthand,
0: Another thing here that made me think is when you read stories of like people that have night terrors. Yeah. They often will describe pressure on their chest. Oh, wow. So this is something that is relatable probably mm. to a lot of his audience. And like someone's probably heard of this happening to someone before. Uh. Or it might happen to you. Or even like, I don't know, I've been camping and like, been like, oh crap, like I forgot to put the food up in a bear bag. Mm. Like I have to go do it. When of course, like there's no bears for hundreds of miles. Right. But there's, like, this sense of, like, oh, like, there's this one thing I can do, and then I'll be okay, and then I can sleep. Ah. Yeah, that's good.
1: But maybe there are bears. <laughs> Where bears? There, there, might, there might be some, some willow bears. Willow bears. Um, I'm going to talk about the Swede, unless you want to talk no, about it. No, go else. for it. All right. It's time for the Swede. So they've had this uh, not awesome night. And by they, I actually mean the main character, because the Swede has been asleep the whole time. So here we go. The sun was high in the heavens when my companion woke me from a heavy sleep and announced that the porridge was cooked, and that there was just time to bathe. The grateful smell of frizzling bacon entered the tent door. River still rising, he said, and several islands out in midstream have disappeared altogether. Our own island's much smaller. Any wood left? I asked sleepily. The wood and the island will finish tomorrow in a dead heat, he laughed. But there's enough to last us until then so this is a key moment because you know he's waking up everything seems to be fine his friend is making bacon for him it's a great thing to wake up to at all times and there's this little line in here that gets dropped but we'll hear more about it in a
0: second so i something that's done often is they the author continually undulates with moments of intense fear and Mm then moments of relative comfort right um so like Scary night. Things were kind of spooky. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this Swede's cooking me some porridge. It has some bacon in it. Right. It's sunny. The island's, like, a little messed up. Um, but then the Swede drops the one line about how we'll have enough wood until noon tomorrow. Right. Which, you know, you think it's weird. Like, I when I read this, I was like, oh, well, like, aren't they going to leave right now? Right. Um, the protagonist has the same realization I did when he says, quite suddenly then the implied meaning of the swede's words flashed across me showing that he no longer wished to leave post haste and had changed his mind enough to last till tomorrow he assumed we should stay on the island another night so he gives you this brief comfort and then rips it away from you right. um and that further unsettles you right so rather than just implying horror and horror and scary and scary the whole time right. he gives you a respite—is that a word? Respite. 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 Um, he gives you a respite. Respite. He gives you a comfort, <laughs> <laughs> like comforting time, and then pulls that rug out from under your feet. Mm, um, yes. So it's a good way he builds horror, but then also it shows that you, as the reader, are gonna have to spend another night on the island. Mm. Like when I read, like, "Oh, like I'm gonna like saddling up for another, <laughs> another night's coming. We don't get to go down the river." Um, right. So that's that's why that's so significant I think
1: and you'll see this pattern repeated over and over again in this text. Definitely. That's a really good point. Um he does an amazing job uh setting you up for different circumstances and then having it turn out differently than you anticipate. So sometimes he makes something seem scary and then it turns out that it's not, you know, it's just an otter, which actually it's not. We'll see that later. But whoa. <laughs> so, <laughs> whoa now. Um yeah, or he shows you something that seems fine. You know, they're like, oh, it's morning time. We're all good. And then something you're like, uh-oh, we are not. So he does a really good job manipulating your perception and where you think things are going to go and then turning it on you. It's a really good point. So we're going um, to hear why the Swede doesn't plan to leave tomorrow. I mean, doesn't plan to leave. Today. Yes, this is very important. Yeah. Hey. So main character's are like, what's going on here? Back to the book. We'd better get off sharp in an hour. That's the main character. I still presently, feeling for an opening that must bring him indirectly to a partial confession at any rate, and his answer puzzled me uncomfortably. Rather, if they'll let us. Who'll let us? The elements, I asked quickly, with affected indifference? The powers of this awful place. Whoever they are, he replied, keeping his eyes on the map. The gods are here, and if they are anywhere at all in the world. The elements are always the true immortals," I replied, laughing as naturally as I could manage, yet knowing quite well that my face reflected my true feelings when he looked up gravely at me and spoke across the smoke. We shall be fortunate if we get away without further disaster. Further disaster? Why? What's happened? For one thing, the steering paddle's gone, he said quietly. So this is bad, because without a steering paddle, you can probably talk more about this. Right, like the river's intense. Yeah. Um...
0: You're in a bad canoe. Imagine motors don't exist. Um, that's it. Basically, means you're like in a car without a steering wheel, right? Um, so this point is is interesting because the Swede has been giving credibility, um, but as the reader, I and I believe most people probably put themselves in place of the protagonist. Right. Where you're struggling there's a lot of amazing things happening and you're struggling to put yourself in that position because these are things you haven't experienced. Mm. But when this reliable confidant starts telling you like, Ha ha like elementals know there are other <laughs> things here at play. Right. You're like, Oh, like maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. And this unraveling of my explanations aren't answering the questions I have mm-hmm. really comes to play because the author is losing grip. Right. So he says the examination I made of the shore did not assist in this theory um, he's worrying about the island but all the same I clung to that diminishing portion of my intelligence which I called my reason mm. so he's abandoning lo- he started, He wants to use logic and reason because that's what he's comfortable and safe with right. but he's stepping into a world where those rules don't matter anymore Right. and that's it's confusing to us and it's confusing to him and that's uh-huh. what is making terror happen Right. So we'll see how this tear plays out in their relationship. Oh, do
1: you want to talk about um, the damage that's actually happened to the canoe first? Yeah. So, that's really
0: interesting. Um, they, they're they inspecting the canoe, and... Ooh, this is actually extremely interesting. The, the steering paddle is gone. Right. That means they can't really control where they're going, and they find a slit in the canoe. Now, I... For those of us who are not expert canoe men, um, <laughs> which women. is probably most... I was using, yes, canoe women or canoe people. Canoe uh, people. Uh, <laughs> I'm a canoe person. For sure. It, it talks about how it's a narrow slit and how when they initially launched, it wouldn't leak. But once mm. they got into the main portion of the river, it would burst forth right. um, and force them to sink. And then they also point out about how one of their paddles has been sanded oh. so thin that on first stroke in the river, it would snap. Right. So there's all these things that appear to give them safety and comfort, mm. but then would be removed um, quite quickly. And the Swede keeps talking about how they're meant to be a sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's that's strange. The protagonist doesn't understand what's going on. I didn't understand what was going on. But the Swede thinks something wants them to... Fall into the river and drown. Right. Uh, which is strange. So the protagonist then will explain it by wind. Wind is the primary. Wind and rocks <laughs> right. have caused all these damages. Right. Which is plausible. Like it might
1: have. Sure. But it, it, it's really interesting to consider because the Swede is totally convinced that there are evil spirits on the island that want them to die. Mm-hmm. He has not seen them. The main character just saw them last night. Like he witnessed the attack of the willows. He witnesses these bronze But he explains people. them as a hallucination. He rationalizes right. what he saw as just a trick of the mind. But it's interesting that he's the one who's seen them, and he doesn't believe it, whereas the Swede hasn't seen anything, and he knows they're in big trouble. So it's kind of this interesting contrast of their sensitivities. There's like a dichotomy between one understanding of the world, and then like a logical science reasoning of the world. Right. Yeah, it's really well done. And that uh, tension is going to lead to a little bit of conflict. Oh, no. <laughs> so here we go. Um, they're talking about, so they've observed previously that there are these small pits. Everywhere on the island, there's this really interesting texture to the sand as if they're these little, I don't know if you've seen antlion pits, but they have these like direct sort of inverse cone pits in the ground. So he's seen these all over the island and they're definitely weird. And there's a pattern on that paddle that's been sanded down that tells them that something weird is going on. And the Swede says, Yes, he said, I know. They're all over the island. He's talking about those sand pits. But you can explain them, no doubt. (laughs) In response, (laughs) wind, of course. (laughs) (laughs) That was an aggressive reading. Okay, so the, the main character. Wind, of course, I answered without hesitation. Have you never watched those little whirlwinds in the street? that twist and twirl everything into a circle. This sand's loose enough to yield. That's all. So yeah, they're they're starting to disagree about stuff. And although the main character's explanations are technically possible, like yeah, we've all seen that little sort of vortexy whirlwind on a concrete surface or something like that. But um, it's clear to the Swede that this is not what's happening. (laughs) And this guy's in major denial, and it's starting to cause some tension in their relationship.
0: So let's close out this chapter
1: um by looking
0: at the the last little section because it it again whoever edited the edited edited this way it in this way did a fantastic job um, <clears throat> the Swede he said nothing to me, however, about it, and I asked no questions and Meanwhile, as he mended that torn canoe with the skill and address of a red Indian. <laughs> I was glad to notice his absorption in the work, for there was a vague dread in my heart that he would speak of the changed aspect of the willows. Mm. And if he noticed that my imagination, and if he noticed that my imagination could no longer be held a sufficient explanation of it all. So he's, at this point, there's there's a conflict externally, Um, between him and the swede and him and nature but then within himself between reason and the impossible
1: nice yeah closing thoughts
0: closing thoughts i'm ready for section three right um to
1: see how things heat up oh yeah so this has been chapter two of the willows thanks for joining us on the book cult podcast we will see you next week